This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for sticking around. I'm Aliyah Kiley. I'm a graduate student in the Film and Media Studies Department, and I'm so fortunate to have Professor Elena Levine with me from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, to talk about those three shows we just watched, A Father Knows Best, um, Mary Tyler Moore, and Modern Family. So to structure the conversation a little bit, I think mm-hmm. we'll start with talking about the role of television and culture and society more generally, okay. and then we'll dive into the episodes and talk about the themes of gender, work, and family as we go. Great. Sound good to everyone? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Um, so can you talk a little bit about why TV, especially commercial TV, this kind of TV, is important for us to look at and somehow can allow us to have cultural conversations? Seems sure. Maybe like an old show from the 50s or a show from the 70s or a formulaic sitcom might not be able to reveal much about gender or family. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Aaliyah and Patrice and everybody. It's a thrill to be here and to be able to talk about all of this today. I think that uh, it's easy to dismiss television that we see as commercial, as fluffy, as entertaining, as silly, as you know, all of this stuff certainly is. Um, but really, television has long served as a really central storytelling form in American society and, of course, much of the rest of the world as well. And for much of television history, there were relatively few options for what was available to watch. And so the fact that so many people would have been watching Father Knows Best or Mary Tyler Moore, um, and we can talk about how that might be a little bit different in some ways with a more contemporary example like Modern Family, Mm -hmm. you really can start to think about the stories that are being told there as as a space where the culture is thinking about and contemplating issues that are central to it. Because... It's a commercial medium. Its goal is to sell advertising slots, right? But it also wants to appeal to people. It wants people to want to watch, to tune in, to be invested, to keep coming back to see those advertising messages. Um, And, of course, the creators have uh, goals beyond just those advertising messages. They have stories that they want to tell. And those things coming together can make for some really intriguing insights into the culture in which we live. Yeah, I think... I think almost um, it sounds like especially the time period that we were talking about, kind of the 50s and the 70s, is so different from the fragmented, too much TV content. There's so much we can watch. There's so many ways to watch. People are watching in different rooms. Can you talk a little bit about how the context, you touched on it a little bit, but mm-hmm. how that context was different maybe for the um, Mary Tyler Moore and for Father Knows Best, and then how maybe we consider those shows differently? How, how were they able to maybe inform a different kind of cultural conversation than maybe not everyone watches Modern Family in this room, which would be a very different kind of viewing context. Right. Well, uh, the period um, of television history up till about the mid to late 80s is sometimes called the network era because the three main broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, were um, pretty much the only game in town. PBS comes along in the, in the late 60s. But um, you had those, you know, relatively few number of options for what people could have been watching. And vast, you know, numbers of people were watching those shows at any one time. And so just the the kind of cultural centrality Mm -hmm. of television programming in that era 
is uh, allowed it to be a kind of common conversation mm-hmm. that has become more tricky in especially in the 2010s as we've had you know more and more fragmentation of audiences in the streaming era but this has been going on for a few decades now from the rise of cable on and the contemporary context you know it's very hard sometimes to find common um conversations. And yet, you have a show like Modern Family, which is on ABC, one of the broadcast networks that's still around, of course. Um, and that is still getting you know, a larger audience than most things on television. Right. And it's still trying to speak to a kind of common cultural currency in a way that's not that different from what those earlier programs were doing that were also, of course, on broadcast networks. And so I think there are some continuities there in terms of the way that they're trying to speak to a broad audience in terms that many different people might find some way to connect to. Um, At the same time, however, there's literally less people watching any one thing, even something that appears on a network like ABC. And so you touched on this a little bit already, but I think it's interesting, a lot of times media or television or films are sometimes thought of as a mirror, it's reflecting back to us what we are, but it doesn't really quite seem to capture what television is or what the media is. It's at once capturing um, and maybe reflecting, but it's also representing it in a certain way. It's kind of pushing certain things forward and leaving some things off of the agenda. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what is television's relationship to social change to kind of that cultural conversation. Sure. Um, I like the metaphor of a distorted mirror to think about (laughs) television's relationship to our society in that it's not that it has nothing to do with the society. It is showing us something about our world, but it's not showing us an exact duplication of the world, of course. Um, It's showing a kind of, you know, funhouse mirror, distorted mirror view where it's capturing certain things that are like the world, but kind of uh, shaping them in particular ways, mm-hmm. and of course not showing certain things, um, leaving things some things out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's a useful way of thinking about it because it's, you have to kind of walk that fine line between it has something to do with our world, but it's mm-hmm. not an exact duplication of it. And that's personally one of the things I think is so interesting about it is because then you can really delve in and think about, well, in what ways is it speaking to our world? And sometimes it's opening a very small, tiny little crack of a window of something that might be new or different or a kind of rising um, sentiment in the culture. And, you know, over time, that window could kind of crack open more and more and more. Hmm. Um, And you can kind of see that when you look at television, especially across different time periods, and you see shifts that happen. Of course, you also see other things that don't change so much, and that's also interesting to know. Which we saw a lot of. Yeah. Um, I think, well, maybe we could talk a little bit about why these shows. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot we could have chosen. There's a lot to choose from, obviously. Um, What do you think, why these shows, I guess? What's instructive about these shows. I'll, we can maybe talk about genre in a second, or if you want to talk about that now, but mm-hmm. there's so much different types of programming that has you know, started in the 50s and the 60s that is still resonant today. What does the sitcom or the family sitcom have to tell us, and why these particular shows do you think are important? Yeah, well, sitcoms have been a you know central part of television storytelling and really radio storytelling before television all throughout their history, as you say. Um, you know, and comedy, of course, has a very long history culturally, Everybody likes funny things. And so that's, um, it, it makes it a kind of quintessential form of television in a way that uh, is useful if you're trying to think across time again and to look at how things change. And 
Throughout all of television history, this notion of a family sitcom has been really prominent in that um, sometimes it's a very conventional family, like the father knows best case of the you know conventional nuclear family of the Andersons. Um, and sometimes, um, you know, at certain points in TV history, and particularly in the 70s when Mary Tyler Moore comes about, you start to have what was sometimes called the workplace family, where you get a you start to get a kind of glimpse of it in this because of course this is the first episode, but you start to get a glimpse of how she's Mary's going to kind of have a, a family of sorts, both in the apartment building mm-hmm. and then in the workplace, where you just are starting to get to know her co-workers. And so in a lot of ways, even though this was quite different and that it, the setting was a single woman's apartment and her workplace as opposed to a conventional uh, nuclear family, you start to see some of the same patterns. Um, and then, of course, Modern Family is you know, very deliberately called Modern Family because it's repeating so many of those family sitcom formulas, but it's trying to give this clever twist. And I don't know if you remember the first episode of Modern Family when there's like the reveal of how all of these characters are actually connected to each other. Yeah. So they don't, you kind of meet the three different families and then you learn that they're all related to each other Mm -hmm. and what the relationship is. And it was, um, you know, the big twist that was about sort of, oh, we're going to tell you a family story in a new way. And so that notion of the family, I mean, and this of course connects to the fact that Television is um, understood to be something, at least for most of its history, that people experience in their homes, where they watch with their families, um, you know, in a living room or family room or rec room, as sometimes it was called historically, uh, and that being uh, a way to connect with the family by actually telling stories about families. Of course, one more thing about it is that mm-hmm. the family, of course, is multi-generational, and for much of TV history, right. the idea was, like, let's try and pull in everybody to watch our programming, and so something that can appeal to the kids and the parents and the grandparents sounds um, really sounded really great to the creators of television. And probably the sitcom then, as you touched on, wants to kind of be able to engage that broader cultural conversation. So these shows that are going to be on networks that are looking for broader audiences, they're not trying to build cult fan audiences or anything, are probably going to continue to use this kind of format in order to continually draw in those kinds of broader audiences. Exactly. So, you know, a show like Modern Family on ABC is still trying to reach a broader audience than, say, um, you know, a niche streaming platform might be or a cable channel that has a particular audience in mind. And so those tendencies are going to make something like the family sitcom a good fit. Um, because it's imagined to appeal to a wide range of viewers. So I'd like to jump in to the episodes now. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Betty Girl Engineer, so Father Knows Best. Um, I want to start with the end, because <laughs> you just have to start with the end. Um, I mean, watching it now, it's just such a betrayal of this emerging woman's conscious, young woman's consciousness, and it just seems like it's almost violent. You just feel like, oh, it's so hard to watch. <laughs> And it's so sudden, you know, it all, so it's sudden. just, she's so certain and then suddenly it just happens. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about the end and maybe yeah. what work it's doing and how it fits with the rest of the episode and sure. how it's kind of positioned there? I think one of the things that's so interesting watching it in the contemporary context is how you can see how there was that commercial break when it seems that Betty is not going to even speak to Doyle, and then it comes back. <laughs> you can see it fades out and it comes back, so that would have been when the commercial was placed originally. And it's quite a brief, like what is sometimes called a tag at the end of the episode, where everything gets kind of tied up neatly, and it turns out she really does, you know, just want to go on a date with him and isn't, doesn't really care about being an engineer after all. Um, 
And it's, yeah, it's crushing in some ways from our contemporary perspective. But my guess is that, you know, it might have been kind of crushing at the time, too, for a lot of audiences. Yeah. Um, because Betty is such a, she's kind of so inspiring in that episode. And she's so, you know, well, spunky in the Lou Grant's name uh, terms for, for Mary. Uh-huh. Betty kind of has that quality, too. And she, uh, you know, she's really persuasive throughout the episode. And so um, it seems like... My guess is, okay, so I don't know, and I'm not sure that we have any evidence of this, that there was, uh, you know, I don't think somebody came and said, you have to make sure she was on the dress at the end. You know, nobody right. was telling anybody that they had to do that. But right. we're talking about 1956. We're talking about a time when um, the culture was quite conservative in terms of its gender roles. Um, and although at the same time, there's starting to be changes. There's starting to be ways in which um, more equality between men and women is is becoming a bigger, uh, more prominent uh, mm-hmm. cultural and social issue. And you can really just see that bubbling out in this episode, both how there's a potential for change and how the culture's not quite ready to go that far. And so yes. kind of puts that very conventional conclusion on it and brings Betty back into this very traditional role. Um, but I'm not sure that it really erases what happens before that in the episode, because most right. of what I think... I mean, it's hard to not remember that ending, but if you've watched this episode, you remember all of the sort of funny things that happen along the way and Betty's kind of, um, you know, kind of persistence and enthusiasm, I think is really what stands out for me. Yeah, she's so reasonable. I think that's the hard thing about kind of the harassment and the discounting is that she's just so practical and reasonable about it. And you, you know, she's thought through it. She's not being, um, you know, she's not being you know, like she, she's not being rash. She's, she's just so level-headed. And I think that's what makes it difficult. Um, I want to talk about the dress and (laughs) clothes in general. So clothes are very symbolic in this episode. She's obviously her mom's pushing the dress on her. She has to wear the work shirt and Mm -hmm. the boots and Mm -hmm. the hat doesn't quite fit right. And of course the dress (laughs) in the end, can you talk about what clothes are doing? Why clothes? Why do you think that is so important to this? Yeah, it's such a great, you know, symbol of the the tension in the episode. And so, you know, it's, 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 you know, we might not think about Father Knows Best as like the height of, you know, elegant writing, but it's actually a really kind of elegant plot device to have this theme that goes throughout the episode where there's this, um, you know, the, the role of the clothing. Because I think clothing was, was such an important, and still is, such an important marker of gender mm-hmm. identity. And it's one of the key ways in which Betty's disruption of what's expected of her is made visible. Um, in that there's this, there's this dress that everyone assumes she's going to love and she's totally disinterested in it. Yes. Um, and then the way she's like literally taking her brother's clothing and, um, that, and all of those, you know, it's, there's other markers of gender too, right? Like the name, um, the mm-hmm. whole BJ thing, but, um, the clothing is one of the primary markers. And I think, you know, part of it surely is fifties American culture and expectations for what was appropriate for young women to wear. Mm-hmm. Um, my, one of my favorite gags in that is the whole joke about his, you know, what his uh, mother and his sister and his aunt and their skirts <laughs> running to, you know, running yeah. back home from the voting booth and yeah. how Betty makes fun of that. She's so clever in the way she does that. And that, but that fact that their dress is important there mm-hmm. and um, is also an image that really sticks in my mind. And so it's, I think it's just really highlighting those kind of somewhat surface examples of gender. Mm-hmm. And by kind of making jokes out of it, I think it's poking a little bit at how surface it is and how ultimately insignificant those things are, even though obviously in the end she puts on the dress and she kind of re right. readapts to those conventional markers of gender. And I think it's interesting that she, you know, it's almost like, of course, we 
change the clothes we put on to go out into, into public as we do at home. But there is a sense of, you know, she's having to suit up to go into this different kind of environment that really isn't for her. Right. And it highlights that by she really signaling that for us with the clothes change. For sure. And also how different she is, I think, from her mother in particular. Like, Margaret is, is you know, really the opposition yes. here is, yes, I think, mainly Margaret. Margaret's the most distraught by this whole thing. Yes, yeah, she and is. And she also looks the most, you know, she's always in her proper, you know, housewife dress. You're um, right. She yeah. so respons- seems so responsible for reproducing yeah. kind of this family environment and these roles. Mm-hmm. Well, that gets me to, um, mm-hmm. I love watching this. I love how high the stakes are for her to be exploring this, to be going on these little vocational lessons it's like she doesn't know if she should put out his or hers towels she doesn't know if she has a boy or a girl anymore she doesn't know if she hates bj she doesn't you know and then doyle's whole rant about how bridges aren't going to be made anymore and you know basically society's going to crumble if she goes and has any kind of vocational experience right so can you talk about just how extreme yeah i mean it's just the responses their responses are so extreme Right. And I think this is partly where the comedy element comes in, right? So, you know, one thing that makes things funny is when they're excessive, you know? And so, mm-hmm. part, I mean, I think we're supposed to sort of knowingly kind of nod along with um, Betty's parents, but at the same time, we're supposed to chuckle at them as well. Like, you're kind of, everybody, you yeah. get, a, I mean, the laughs are a different level of laughs than in, like, the modern family style comedy, but everybody, you're kind of chuckling lightly at everybody. And I think you chuckle at them as well as at, at Betty. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's important that their, their excessive reaction and maybe Margaret's in particular are, are also part of the humor here. So we're not just supposed to like assume she's 100%, you know, right. But I think one of the things that really comes out in the episode is the generational differences and how there's a real difference between Betty and her siblings even and the parents. So the siblings kind of rib her, but they're not really worked up about the gender stuff. Um, right. You know, Right. Um, Bud calls her BJ in kind of in a joking way, but it's more just like a sibling ribbing way than like in a something's wrong here. Something's wrong. Yeah. And, you know, he keeps asking her for help with his friend's, you know, car. Yeah. Like he thinks she knows something um, and he wants to get her help. And so I think that the siblings kind of are that's part, contribute to that sense that like something's changing here. Of course, Doyle is young and is kind of the most progressive of anybody. So that, but that's partly why he's funny. And I think we talked a little bit about it, actually, before we came on, mm-hmm. about, um, and I'm going to forget his name, the older man who's on the chain John. gang. John. Good yeah. job. How many times have you seen this episode? Many, many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John. And he's kind of her only ally in this yeah. whole episode. Um, but he's older. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if maybe what you make of that, if there's maybe some sense of not all of us believe this, or you yeah. know, maybe some people believe that... Um, believe in her or just the possibility that it doesn't have to be this way? Why do you think that? Because you know, yeah, it could have been a younger person. I just think it's interesting that they have it be kind of this older working class man that kind of sees it, sees I her. I agree. I think it is an interesting choice. I and mean, he certainly doesn't, you know, outright champion her. Of course. Um, but he's also, you know, not mocking her or treating her as if she doesn't belong there in a way that everybody else sort of does. Um, and But, of course, Doyle is sort of nasty to him, too, and dismissive mm-hmm. to him. So mm-hmm. there is an interesting sense of, you know, I don't know if it's because he's a less powerful man, even though he's an older man. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a lot of power in that, se- in that setting because he's sort of the underling to yeah. Doyle, yeah. if that might be part of it. Um, it's hard to know exactly what to make of that, but he is a, you know, he's a sympathetic character, and the fact that he's sympathetic and he's kind of respectful and nice to Betty is another way, I think, in which 
the audience is invited to sort of sympathize with Betty too. Right. And give you just a little bit of an anchor because she just suffers so much harassment in that whole episode. <laughs> it's very unrelenting. Um, so maybe we can move on to Mary Tyler Moore. So I just wonder if you can kind of give a sense for those of us that saw it when it aired um, and those for those of us that didn't, just remind us kind of how important and influential both from an industrial perspective and just kind of from a representational one, how important the show was. Yeah, it's interesting. It's hard to know how clear this comes across, you know, today, you know, 50 years later. But um, Mary Tyler Moore was a really important show when it debuted in 1970. It was doing so many things differently than had been the case in television before that time. Um, Largely having a, a, a single woman as the protagonist was almost unheard of. There had been a couple of examples of series um, before that point. Um, and having, you know, a, a quick um, anecdote, you know, the creators of the show really wanted to make her divorced when the show oh. began. And the network would not let them do it because they thought that people would think that um, Mary Tyler Moore had divorced Dick Van Dyke because she'd been his <laughs> wife on the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, and so they, they're like, no, people can't, we'll be so upset if they gonna think shatter, more, you're going to talk about divorce society crumbling. Yes. It's really going to crumble. <laughs> so they said, no, she can't be divorced. And so they're like, okay, we'll make her like coming off of a long relationship. And so, but even that, you know, the acknowledgement that yes. she, um, had been in this, you know, presumably intimate relationship with a man that she wasn't married to, um, and uh, was, you know, that was just quite unusual at the time. And so in addition to having this kind of innovation of the turn to the more workplace family, as opposed to the conventional family, just having the protagonist be this single working woman who, you know, stays single through the whole series is the other amazing thing that I think, you know, is very atypical now. We see lots of single women in television, but often they're sort of, they're heading towards some sort of long-term pairing. So having that be so central and having things like the relationship between her and her women friends, Rhoda and Phyllis, be so central to the program was also, um, you know, pretty unusual Mm -hmm. for the time. Um, And so that's, you know, those are among some of the things. It was also produced by an independent uh, production company, Mm -hmm. which was also pretty unusual in, in television where the Hollywood movie studios had been really dominant in TV production. And so some people credit that as one of the reasons it started to bring some of those new ideas to the screen. And probably had, yeah, new, new forms of creative control and the ability to kind of influence some new possibilities right. that weren't kind of hitting that mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we've already touched on with Betty and that I think runs throughout the Mar- this pilot, the Mary Tyler Moore episode, is just how... Even though there's a lot of uncertainty, she feels unsure of herself, she's nervous, she's afraid, she's anxious about things, she calls herself a coward, I love that part with the blouse. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also so certain about so much. Mm-hmm. She's so certain that she could have a relationship but doesn't want it on these terms. Mm-hmm. She takes a job she's probably not really qualified for but mm-hmm. feels like she's just going to go for it. Mm-hmm. She knows how she wants her apartment to be designed mm-hmm. um, despite how best does it. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how that certainty... Um, wrapped up with a little vulnerability, but really that kind of thread of certainty Mm -hmm. builds the character and kind of creates some of the tension in the show. Yeah. It's really due to, you know, both the writing and the performance. You know, those two kind of come together in this perfect way. And of course, it's called the Mary Tyler Moore Show. The show was designed around her. She was already a big star. And she's so important to the role because of, you know, her combination of sort of spunk and kind of vulnerability, right? She's so good. And she's so good at that. She walks that line so 
perfectly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a testament to her talent, but also I think a testament to just certain qualities that she possesses, the quality of her voice and the way that she has the slight tremor to her voice is really significant. Um, you know, and some people have looked at that and said, okay, we, we want to look at this show as some sort of feminist um, kind of breakthrough. And in many ways it is, but she's also certainly not the most you know, um, she, she, uh, empowered character. She's often stumbles. She's often reluctant, but of course that's part of what makes her so likable and relatable too. And really one of the kind of innovations that this series and some others at the same time brought about was a real, uh, a kind of, um, multidimensionality to characters that you hadn't seen that much, especially in sitcoms before this point. Mm -hmm. And that all of the characters have these multiple dimensions where like Lou is gruff, but he's also clearly really vulnerable. Um, right. And, you know, they all have these kind of layers to them. And it's kind of remarkable in one, you know, in the one episode alone that you can see all of that coming out already. Yes. It's just, you know, how beautifully the show was written. You can see that. But that um, the ways that that she, her, you know, the char- Mary herself as a character and as an actress are... Uh, kind of bringing that kind of relatability was so important to being able to have a show that was doing something so different that was having this, you know, single woman at the center of it. It was really important that that woman be a particular type that would have been palatable to a very wide audience. And, you know, she was the, she was the ideal figure for that. And it also allows you to kind of watch her navigate all these uncertainties and take all these hits. Mm -hmm. Um, She has to have that certainty, you know, she has to really know what she wants or else she wouldn't continue through it. And so, and in some ways, again, like the dress or the clothing, it externalizes Mm -hmm. those challenges that women come up against because she's continually putting herself out there and putting herself, throwing herself into the ring. And so Mm -hmm. you constantly see, um, how that unfolds. Yeah. What struck me watching this, um, I realized that she and Betty are not that far apart in, I mean, in time, right? This is like 14 years apart. That, like, Betty would have been 30 years old in 1970. I was, like, having this little fantasy watching it again, like, (laughs) maybe that's Betty, who she grew up, and then she moved to Minneapolis. And, you know, like... I think that's in my question. Oh, sorry. Do you see this picking up where Betty left off? Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like it's, you know, like, it's the the distance between those two moments is really vast, and it's only 14 years. Um, And it's literally, like, the same, you know, character. I mean, it's not the same character, obviously, yeah. but like that yeah. age-wise, she would have been at that point by 1970. And I think that's just a demonstration of culturally how much had changed. Television didn't make that change happen alone, of course. There's lots of really important social and political developments that happen. But that, you know, the, the television evidences that so clearly in the, this, these two shows next to each other. One thing that I also just can't get enough of in this episode um, is Bess and Phyllis. So Cloris Leachman, the fabulous Cloris Leachman, and her <laughs> daughter. Um, and there's also, so younger children, it seems like, in sitcoms often provide a lot of comic relief. Right. So usually they're clueless about what's happening, or suddenly they're like very wise about what's happening. Mm-hmm. And they always kind of provide some ironic or, um, you know, very very comedic role. And I think in, we saw Kathy, Betty's younger sister, you know, that's one yep. mixed up kid, you know, we yep. hear her mm-hmm. kind of echo the sentiment of the time, mm-hmm. but then Bess represents this definitely new kind of emergent young girl mm-hmm. where she is empowered to kind of do her, be herself. She's going to understand the difference between what a real aunt and a, you know, mm-hmm. a nominal aunt is. She's going to be able to rearrange the room, but you can also see 
Phyllis's real frustration with that, and mm-hmm. the comedic tension is so wonderful. You know, mm-hmm. that was Mother's News, Bess. And she <laughs> just has such a hard time kind of dealing with her entitlement that mm-hmm. she's produced. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, do you see in that kind of changing notions of mothers and daughters relating, mm-hmm. of girlhood, of um, kind of trying to maybe raise empowered girls or and the tensions there you know I just think it's so nicely fraught that relationship between those two it is it is and you know there's lots of you know fun stuff that happens in that relationship across that series but uh yeah, I, th- I was struck by that, too, about the really, you know, I was thinking about um, the little girl in Modern Family, too, when she answers the phone and gets mad when they say she <laughs> yeah. sounds like a little girl, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. So, like, that, those three girls are sort of interesting lined up yes. together in that way. Uh, and, yeah, there's, de- I mean, Kathy is pretty pretty sassy, too, in yeah. her Father Knows Best, you know, as much as would have been permitted in the world of Father Knows Best. And Bess is, you know, is bolder, and that's a sign right. of how much has changed in those 14 years. But definitely, I think there's a way in which children, I mean, part of the family sitcom formula um, is typically to have children Mm -hmm. as part of the narrative and that the children can say and do things that, you know, maybe the adults wouldn't. Um, And it's funny and it's a a point for children in the audience to connect to, but it also, you know, kind of reveals something about kind of the changing roles of children within families and within the society. And so you definitely see that. And Bess is a particularly, like, amusing character because she's Mm -hmm. such a, she's kind of a smart aleck type. Um, And so that, you know, you you get that, you get a sense of that in that pilot, I think. Yeah, she's Mm -hmm. great. I love that episode. Mm -hmm. Um, So turning to Modern Family, can you kind of see how you, can you talk a a little bit about how you see this fitting in this lineage? Because we kind of skipped over very important sitcom history, family sitcom history of the 80s and the 90s. So much happened there. We could only fit so much in. But can you kind of talk about how you see this, maybe jumping over a little bit, but how this fits in that lineage? Sure. I mean, just thinking about time-wise, right, there's like a huge gap of time, as you're saying. Like the time between Father Knows Best and Mary Tyler Moore is quite small compared to what happens, you know, from 70 to um, the Modern Family episode that we watched. And so that's, I think, important for us to keep in mind, although interestingly, like, how similar some moments right. of it are, like the, you know, the kind of uh, boss who's kind of inappropriately, you know, making comments about a younger woman's body and things like that, like, as kind of Lou briefly does in Mary Tyler Moore, and then um, Charlie, I think is his name, um, yeah. Mitch's boss does with Haley. And so there's those, you know, those moments that are, you know, kind of disturbingly similar 40 plus years later. Um, but I think it's an interesting example, one, because it kind of is the, uh, in some ways, a very familiar pattern of dealing with families. Um, but of course, part of the conceit of modern family is that this is a different, this is a modern family. This is a different kind of family. <laughs> uh-huh. There's a same-sex couple. There's an uh-huh. older man with his younger second wife. Um, and then there's the more conventional nuclear family of um, Claire and Phil's family. And so there's those, you know, that that's part of it is like, oh, are we the way we think about families is different now. Families are, you know, we have a right. broader definition of families. All of those things are clearly part of what that show is trying to do. But I also thought this was an interesting um, episode to pair with the other two because of the role of work in it. Yes. And that that's a theme that goes across all three. Um, and in this case, here's, you know, Claire, this woman who's been a, a stay-at-home parent for many years trying to re-enter the workforce, not in a very, you know, uh, you know, she's going to work for her father. It's not like the most bold 
step that she's taking, but right. she's, you know, she's clearly trying to kind of make it on her own as, you know, Mary was, right. um, just in a different yeah. life stage and in a different context. Yeah. Um, and still grappling with the older man who's like, you know, not sure how to handle her being there and things like that. So there's some interesting parallels there. Um, I also really like the role, um, the story about Cam in this episode and how he kind of finds a, a, a role for himself because he's also been a stay-at-home parent, basically. And so, you know, across the years of the show, um, when they adopt, um, what's her name? Lily. Lily. Thank you. Uh-huh. When they adopt Lily, um, you know, he primarily is his primary caregiver and, uh, Cam is, and then he's sort of trying to find his career. And so I, I, I like how, you know, the show is all about kind of diversifying the notion of family in certain ways, but I really like the way that it makes us think about gender in multiple ways too, and that like a man can also have this sort of yeah. effort to try and figure out who he is and find, and then of course what he finds is like, um, goes against our assumptions about identity, right? right? So he's um, a more effeminate gay man, and yet the ideal role for him is to be the football coach, which you don't right. you know, think of as being that right. that connection. So I really, I like that, and I think that is like, if you know, I'm not saying that we're looking at a straight line of progress here across these three shows <laughs> by any means, but I think that's right. one thing that is um, a, a, a sign of some progress or change, at least, in the earlier examples, and that we see a man having a similar kind of struggle to figure out um, how to fit together his career and his identity. And then it can be more situated in those other life circumstances and mm-hmm. decisions rather than so fixed to gender and so right. fixed to kind of this is how, you know, Doyle Hobbes' version of a thousand years ago people had it all figured out. Right. <laughs> um, so in this episode, we have gone from, you know, a young, from young Betty mm-hmm. to Mary Tyler, you know, Mary starting her starting her career, entering into a career, and then Claire returning. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get these kind of nice stages of mm-hmm. work. But I think we don't really see women working. Mm. I mean, these episodes are really not, we don't see them really doing anything. You know, like Betty never gets to learn how to do the vermouth, whatever she calls it, scale. (laughs) Um, You know, Mary's like sharpening pencils. And then Claire just spends so much of her time just trying to like manage the perception of herself and manage that she's just so awkward and trying to make other people kind of accept her. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, partly that's that's television. And right. That's the distorted mirror. Is like we don't see people on television doing, at least in certain kinds of television, doing certain things that are very typical of the real world, like actually working at work, um, unless it's like a <laughs> cop show or something where the cops procedural, are, yeah, yeah, are working. So I mean, definitely in comedies, you don't see even in the workplace comedy, you don't see a lot of work going on. And so right. that's you know, again, like people spend their days working. Is that what they want to do when they're you know trying to relax and watch a comedy? So I think that's part of it. Is just like television is not into the kind of mundane details of actual work. Um, And they're like, why would we want to talk about that? Um, But it is kind of interesting that in episodes that are primarily about work, there's not really work going on. Or I guess what I was thinking is there could have been, you know, there could have been some breaks or some acts or some comedic kind of value in trying to learn it and struggling Mm -hmm. or figuring out that maybe this isn't what you want. It just seems that so much of it was about fighting to be in the space, Mm -hmm. fighting to be there and trying to... Mm -hmm. I don't know. That seemed to be what most of it was about, was just managing. And even um, Cam, too, of just right. people's perception that he should or shouldn't be doing it. Right. It seems the, to be the preoccupation. Right. And so maybe partly they're all stories about um, especially um, either women or feminized people. Yeah. 
being kind of having to kind of figure out or, or get them fight for a place for themselves in a space that's not typically associated with them because they're typically more associated with the home and um, the domestic sphere. And so maybe that's part of it is that there's a just the very act of, you know, being outside the home, um, as, as, you know, kind of dated as that sounds, um, that that alone is kind of a, an important part of the, the journey of these, that we're following yeah. these characters on. I mean, Mary in some ways has the least, is, it's the least hard for her because right. she doesn't occupy, she doesn't even have a home at the start of the series. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's setting it all up at right. the same time. Right. Yeah, and I, th- and I think still kind of having to wage that battle even in Modern Family of that I belong to be here or that I should be here or... Um, you know, I think is, is interesting that that persists. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways Modern Family is a very conventional show in many respects is that, you know, there's this family, this, um, you know, nuclear family is one of, the, one of the families where the wife has been a stay-at-home parent for so many years, which is obviously not that common in contemporary American society. Right. Um, so two more quick thoughts that I have. So one, I think... What I think I love about Modern Family is mm-hmm. that, you know, they make fun of everybody. Mm-hmm. No, one, yeah. no one is um, safe from kind of being made fun of. Mm-hmm. And they set up gender dynamics that are really problematic. Like you said, Charlie is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of very creepy to yeah. Haley. Mm-hmm. Um, Jay is really dismissive of Claire. You know, there's all these. Um, mm-hmm. um, Phil calls it a 20-year vacation, Claire raising the children. So clearly they're, like, you know, exaggerating this to talk right. about how awful it is. Right. But then also because they make fun of everybody, you know, Claire mm-hmm. is also mocked, Haley's made fun of, yeah. Cam is also made fun of. I don't know how... It, it, do you think that it loses some of the critique or it loses some of... Yeah, I mean, I think the style of the comedy it has changes so much. Like, it's mm-hmm. the pace is so much faster of yeah. the episode... Everything has this kind of, literally has this ironic distance because of the, the mockumentary framing on Modern Family. Um, there's so many uh, steps involved to kind of distance us from it in a way that's so different from um, the other examples, definitely different from Mary Tyler Moore, I think. Um, so I think all of that, like, I'm not sure that we're really supposed to connect with the characters at the same emotional level. Uh-huh. Um, the jokes are fast. Like, there's more literal jokes. There's more, like, literal setup and punchline mm-hmm. kind of jokes, even though there's no laugh track. Um, and so all of those things, like, it's a more kind of frenetic style of comedy, mm-hmm. and it's a more, um, you know, like, rapidly paced narrative, and there's local, there's more storylines, and it's just, it, it just is a different way of telling stories. And, you know, yeah. maybe it's kind of, feels more contemporary and it's kind of faster paced, but I don't know, uh, you know, I'm, maybe I'm just being nostalgic, but it seems like it's <laughs> missing something that is, you know, yeah. about that deeper connection. And maybe you can get that, obviously there's so much television now, you can get that in other spaces, but in a kind of mainstream comedy like this, I think it's harder to get there. Yeah, it just feels like it's a little bit harder to root for Claire like you root for Betty or you yeah. root for Mary. You know, you're just so wanting them to succeed, but it's just a little bit harder, I think, because mm-hmm. they're so caricature that yeah. it makes it hard. And so I feel like some of those, they're raising these really important issues, mm-hmm. but then a little bit of it gets lost because it's harder to really root for them. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, so one last quick question. Mm-hmm. I'm, so we start with, you know, everybody knows better than Betty, and in the end... She reveals everyone was right. Um, she puts on the dress. And I feel like Mary really shows us that she knows best. You know, mm-hmm. she knows better than Lou and mm-hmm. Bill. And, you know, she's kind of the one that knows best. And then in the end of Modern Family, there's this moment where Jay gets to know best. You know, mm-hmm. he gets to like, you know, I told you that you just needed to keep your head down and this is how you needed to work or whatever. Um, 
I, maybe I shouldn't be disheartened. I don't know. Do you, <laughs> did it feel, to me, it feels a little bit like a return to kind of that, you know, everybody yeah. knew better than Claire, but maybe I'm... Did, well, did I mean, you Jay, notice is also, Jay is also an object of ridicule. Yes, so, true. like, the way he's, like, <laughs> shoving true. all the cookies in his mouth. Like, that's so I'm true. not sure, like you were saying before, I think that there's no character, I mean, there's that's no true. authority figure, really, in Modern Family. Like, they're that's all true. absurd in some way or another. Um, and so I, I think that that helps it. I think, interestingly, even though Father Knows Best is called Father Knows Best, like, I don't think the father yeah. has that much authority in that see I mean he you know the way he drops the plate like a kind of the bumbling father yeah um so even though people like to think about oh back then the fathers really were you know all-knowing and wise he's you know he's still a little bit hapless um and it's you know it's funnier that way but uh yeah and so I'm not sure that it's a full circle um but I do think that things haven't changed as much as you might think in um what is it, 65 years or so between, you know, the first example and the second we looked at. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming out and to thank again Elena Levine for coming. Thank you thank all. You. Wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.